This is The Guardian. Today, chaos and confusion at the Manston Processing Centre. What's gone wrong with our asylum system? should be closed down, it's a disgrace. It's not fit for habitation. At first, the news reports revealed dangerous outbreaks of highly infectious diseases. And they're only meant to spend a day or two here, but many have been here weeks, and at least eight have reportedly caught diphtheria, a highly contagious virus. The Manston Asylum Processing Centre was seeing MRSA, diphtheria and scabies spreading rapidly on the site. Well, yesterday, the new Immigration Minister, Robert Jenrick, visited the Manston Immigration Centre. He travelled there with Sir Roger Gale, Conservative MP for Thanet North. What I saw yesterday, and indeed previously on Thursday, was a deterioration actually between Thursday and yesterday. It is overwhelmed and it is wholly unacceptable. It soon became clear that Manston had descended into chaos. Its rows of marquees, designed to hold no more than 1,600 people for a few hours at a time, were detaining more than 4,000 men, women and children for weeks in squalid conditions. I discovered that I was, I was frankly speechless and I'm not someone who's, who is normally speechless. Asylum seekers were referred to by numbers, not by their names. Staff were disciplined for trying to sell drugs to them. In the panic to fix the overcrowding, some migrants found themselves bussed into central London and abandoned. The footage shows a group of migrants who had been taken from Manston on Tuesday night, only to be left stranded in central London, with nowhere to go. The Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, is facing legal action and has been blamed for ignoring warnings that her department may have broken the law. His Home Secretary is overseeing chaos in the Home Office and has broken the law. What will she actually have to do to get the sack? Despite 12 years of a Conservative government in charge, Braverman declared the system broken. Having called the migrant crisis an invasion, this was the Home Secretary doubling down, travelling to Kent by Chinook helicopter. Meanwhile, the Prime Minister has been drawing up an £80 million deal with a French president to stop people crossing the Channel in small boats. But what would it really take to have a fair and compassionate border policy? And why have successive governments failed to fix the dysfunction at the heart of the Home Office? From The Guardian, I'm Noshin Iqbal. Today in Focus, what does the Manston scandal reveal about how the Home Office works or doesn't? Taylor, you've been writing about refugees and migration for more than 20 years, and you broke the first story about what was going wrong at Manston Centre for The Guardian. What did you discover at the beginning when that scandal was brewing? I first started to hear concerns about Manston from people who were working there, talking about rats including apparently a giant rat nicknamed Billy by the staff who worked there. Home Office said that there were no significant public health concerns, but 
these concerns kept coming in my direction. I got scabies. I showed the doctors. They just told me not to scratch it. Stories from within the Munston Processing Centre paints a grim picture of the conditions in which asylum seekers are held. And can you tell me a bit about how Manston was supposed to work, why it was set up and when? Manston is a site in Ramsgate in Kent and it was set up to replace another small boat arrival processing centre in Dover. It's a very large site and it was supposed to be just a very brief staging post but it all went a bit wrong. Diana, in the past month, you've written more than a dozen stories about the centre. Why were things going so badly wrong? When Manston first opened in February of this year to process small boat arrivals, it was considered to be working quite well because people were being moved off the site relatively quickly. As the year went on, and numbers of small boat arrivals increased. That's the point where where problems started. The centre is designed to hold a 1,000 people comfortably with an absolute maximum of 1,600. However, at the peak of the overcrowding, there were reports of up to 4,000 people being held there. Government has said that since that point numbers have significantly reduced and and a lot of arrivals have been now dispersed from Manston. But we have been sourcing more bed spaces with local authorities and in contingency accommodation such as hotels. The population at the Manston facility was back below 1,600. But at its worst... There were more than four times as many people being kept at the centre than it was actually designed to hold. Diane, what do you know about what their conditions were like and how they were being treated? Yes, a young girl threw a note over the fence and and this was picked up by the media. It provided a detailed insight into the lives of the people at Manston. Uh, She said, over 50 family in this building, 30 days. We are very bad, not very well. We're in a difficult life now. And there's some women that are pregnant. They don't do anything for them. We have had photos of people sleeping in heaps of blankets on the floor underneath those seats. We've received reports of overcrowding in the tents, people having to sleep on mats very close to each other, which is obviously not ideal following reports of highly infectious conditions such as diphtheria, MRSA, scabies and COVID. They've had their phones confiscated. Uh, I understand that people are given a two-minute phone call each day, which is supervised by the contractors on the site. But in that time, not everybody has been able to contact relatives to say they've arrived safely in the UK. People are given wristbands with a number on and they're called out by a number rather than by a name, which is very dehumanising. And what do we know about the people who are in Manston? I mean, are there families? Uh, are there lone children? Yes. I mean, it's quite hard to get a, a clear picture. It is a fast-changing situation. But we understand that at some points there have been several hundred 
children on the site, some small children with families, others age-disputed teenagers who the Home Office has initially deemed to be adults, but who have later been thoroughly age-assessed and have been found to be unaccompanied children. Two Sudanese 16-year-olds who said they were in Manston around a month ago gave us this description of their experience. There are no beds in the tents, not even chairs. We used to put the food boxes on the floor and sleep on them. A skin disease spread during my stay and I was afraid of getting infected with it. Do we have any idea of where the people in the centre have come from? I mean, the government has repeatedly claimed that the majority are Albanian men who are economic migrants. Has that been substantiated? My understanding is that there are significant numbers of Albanian men on the site. However, they are a minority of the overall population. So people are coming from Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq, from a variety of African countries such as Somalia, Eritrea, Sudan, Ethiopia, People are coming from the world's conflict zones. When Afghanistan was taken over by the Taliban, there were warnings that small boat crossings by Afghans would begin, and those predictions have proved to be correct. Many Afghans have fled the Taliban who don't qualify for UK government resettlement schemes. And what do the numbers tell us? I mean, in terms of people arriving in small boats... Are there actually more asylum seekers now than there ever have been? My understanding is that the largest number of asylum seekers who who are currently arriving in the UK are now arriving in small boats. Previously, many more would arrive either by plane, if they had the money to do that and obtain false documents to travel, or arrived in the backs of lorries or clung on to the underside of Eurostar trains. But since security was ramped up around Calais, those asylum seekers have been displaced. Dozens of people were told that they're all Iraqi Kurds, carrying a boat down a beach in northern France, determined to set off for Britain. This was a chaotic caravan of people and possessions, three small children among them, meandering towards shore. And ahead of them, one of the most dangerous journeys imaginable. The figures uh, we're we're getting from the Home Office are that around 40,000 so far this year have arrived in small boats, which is a higher number than previously. But on population head, The UK is 18th in Europe for asylum seeker intake. So you wouldn't know that if you just read the small boat headlines every day. And how is the system set up to cope with those 40,000 applications? There have always been delays in processing asylum claims. But in January 2019, the Home Office announced that it would no longer be holding itself to a six-month target for processing the majority of asylum claims. But since then, the backlog has grown and grown and grown. Do we know how big that backlog is now? It's more than 120,000 at the moment, which is a record level. Diane... 
bar a week's break when she resigned as Home Secretary over a security breach and then boomeranged back in again. Suella Braverman has been the Home Secretary in charge during this chaos and she has been accused of deliberately ignoring warnings of how bad things at Manston would get. So what did she actually do? Well, it's been reported that she issued an order that new hotels to put Manston asylum seekers into should be paused. The Home Secretary took the policy decision not to commission further accommodation. And it is that that has led to the crisis at Manston. Uh, I just must gently correct him, however. On no occasion have I blocked the procurement of hotels or alternative accommodation to ease the pressure on Manston. And if those reports are correct, that led to the sort of disastrous overcrowding at Manston. And how have hotels become so integral to how the government is housing people who've come over in small boats or are migrants? The key problem is the backlog of asylum claims. If the Home Office processed all the asylum claims in the backlog more efficiently, then many of the asylum seekers in the backlog who are in what is called dispersal accommodation could find their own accommodation once they're granted leave to remain. So hotel use could be drastically reduced, but for political reasons, that hasn't happened. And that's why we're in the situation we're in now. Well, you say political reasons. It is quite interesting to process how this government, the Conservative government, which has been in charge for 12 years, actually got here because the idea of using hotels to house refugees really makes some people see red. And obviously, It costs a lot of money. It's very expensive. The notion of four-star hotels is bandied around quite a bit, even though often the reality can be, as I've seen, as you've seen, really down at heel, former B&Bs being used to house migrants, asylum seekers. They're not all luxury compounds, are they? So how has that narrative taken hold? No, some of them are extremely down at heel. I mean, there there have been... Media reports that small boat arrivals are just coming to the UK so they can stay in a four-star hotel. There were recent reports that illegal migrants have been put up in a luxury rural hotel, a former stately home near Grantham, which normally charges £400 a night. So I identified several four-star hotels around the country being procured for this purpose. By my standard, that's quite a nice hotel. I've lost count of the number of asylum seekers who've told me they've left hotels with the full knowledge of the Home Office and gone to stay with friends and family because it's just not normal life to stay in a hotel for a long period of time. And people who've fled war zones, you know, walked across mountains, walked through forests, not had access to basic necessities of life over a long period of time... All they're interested in is is reaching a safe place where they can look up to the sky and not see a bomb falling out of it. Coming up. Manston is the latest in a long line of Home Office scandals. So why is the department so troubled?
Daniel Trilling. You're the author of Lights in the Distance, Exile and Refuge at the Borders of Europe. Your Guardian long read on the Home Office was an eye-opening history of a department that has long been seen to be broken. Now, you wrote that piece when Priti Patel was still in charge. And of course, we now have Suella Braverman. Madam Deputy Speaker, we need to be straight with the public. The system is broken. Illegal migration. How unusual is it for the Home Secretary to be calling their own department broken, like Braverman has just done? It's been fairly common, to be honest. I'd say for the last 20 to 25 years, there's been this, this ongoing kind of running sore at the Home Office around how it deals with immigration and asylum. The way that it's been this major point of attack from the right and there is no way of kind of neutrally administering the system. Ministers are always making very strong political demands. Officials are trying to do their jobs, but also kind of make sure that they stay on the right side of whatever political lines are being set out. And just to be clear, is that where you would say, like the turn of the century, the late 90s, early 2000s, is that when the problems really began for the Home Office? It's really from the late 90s onwards that immigration becomes this kind of increasing flashpoint. And that's for a few reasons. That's because in the 90s, because of wars in former Yugoslavia and elsewhere, the number of people coming to Britain to claim asylum started to rise. Over the last 20 or 30 years, we've seen immigration as a whole grow as, as the world becomes more mobile, as during Britain's membership of the EU, people availed themselves of rights of free movement and so on, but also because it became so heavily politicised by the right. So it became a way for uh, the right-wing press and the Conservative Party when it was opposition to uh, bash the Labour government. I think we all know as politicians, certainly on the centre-left, what we fear, that concern slips into prejudice and becomes racism. But we cannot simply dismiss any concern about immigration as racism. And the political dynamic has been one of politicians trying to respond to criticism by showing how tough they are mm. on forms of immigration that become controversial. So what have been the key ways the Home Office has tried to reform? A uh, really big reform was in around 2007, which was just after another one of these scandals. And that led to the resignation of Home Secretary Charles Clark and the entry of John Reid, who famously declared the Home Office not fit for purpose, decided the department was too big, it had too much to deal with, so split it into two, hiving off the criminal justice functions. So if you think about the things that now come under Home Office control, uh, counterterrorism, policing, fire and rescue, immigration, what's the odd one out? I think we could all agree that um, we don't want crimes to take place, we don't want fires to get out of control and cause damage and kill people. Do we as a society want immigration to happen or not? Well, actually, you know, according to government policy and every government that's been around since I've been alive, we both do and we don't. You know, immigration is something that the state is trying to both encourage and control at the same time. We will neither be fortress Britain nor will we be an open house. I want to get the policy right. I want good immigration, not mass immigration. There are people who need our help, and there are people who are abusing our goodwill, and I know whose side I'm on. So if the responsibility for that is sat within a department that is essentially, and I think this is how a civil servant described it to me, you know, the department for stopping bad things happening, mm. it obviously immediately kind of frames the way that immigration is thought about and, and then dealt with. How did detention centres become such a cornerstone of the UK's asylum and migration policy? 
Well, the growth in immigration detention was really a new labour innovation. So that's something that happened in the early 2000s initially. So the initial justification for building detention centres, as I understand it, was that this would be a more efficient and quicker way to process people's claims. And I think part of the thinking was, if people are kept out of sight and out of mind at that part of the process, then there'll be less for the right-wing press or kind of far-right agitators to pick up on and and make a fuss about. Um, What the system actually ended up being was this huge network of detention that wasn't one in which cases were quickly and efficiently and fairly determined, but where it became a place where people were detained for long periods, potentially indefinitely. Harmonsworth Immigration Removal Centre near Heathrow Airport has had a troubled history with riots, protests and damning inspection reports. It's been run by various private contractors, some of which have been severely criticised for the conditions inside. I think it's a surprise, well, for younger listeners especially, that New Labour would be driving this. New Labour's response really was to try and show that it was being as tough as possible on the types of immigration that some people were upset by. There was a point, I can't remember what year it was exactly, maybe 2003 or four, uh, where something called the Downing Street media grid was leaked. uh, And it was a planning grid that showed that Downing Street were kind of collaborating with the editorship of The Sun in planning coverage and The Sun was going to run a week of stories bashing asylum seekers and at the end of the week David Blunkett was down to write a column. Yeah, there were times when I was there where the pressure was so great that we said to staff that you've really got to up the removals and some of those steps were so unpleasant that we had to say, sorry, we, the message has been overdone. The dawn raids and who in a civilised society really feels comfortable with that? My interpretation of that, though, is that that really set a process in motion where you could only move rightwards after that. Certainly subsequent new Labour Home Secretaries all kind of stuck on that trajectory. And then obviously when we got into the 2010s, you had... Cameron and May, with May as Home Secretary, coming in with this idea that, well, we're going to kind of show how tough we can be on this and, um, in the infamous words, declare a hostile environment for what they call illegal immigration. Her intent was to harden this cruel and misdirected policy, pledging to do so ruthlessly. A report last month by immigration officials stated the hostile environment measures were not even having the desired effect. I'm glad you've mentioned the hostile environment because it is one of the policies, Home Office policies, that a lot of people, if they're not familiar with, will definitely have heard and remember. But can you explain, first of all, Daniel, what is it and how did it become so established? Yeah, so in a way, the hostile environment was an attempt to continue a trajectory that had already been set under New Labour. But the key difference between what New Labour were doing and what the Cameron Coalition did was that New Labour saw that as a reason to kind of bolster the state's capabilities. So, you know, they infamously, they wanted to introduce biometric ID cards, that Mm. kind of thing. Under the coalition, under that, you know, the new era of austerity economics, the hostile environment was an attempt to sort of achieve the same goals with a smaller state, a state that was being cut away at. So the hostile environment was this big package of um, new laws and reforms and changes to the system and changes to the rules. And it also went hand in hand with a fresh drive to 
get the number of undocumented uh, immigrants in the UK down and increase the numbers of people leaving the country either voluntarily or by being deported. And that led to one of the you know, most infamous scandals of the Home Office in recent years, which was the Windrush scandal, which essentially involved the Home Office telling people who not only actually had the right to live in the UK, but had come here, you know, as part of a generation of people who had come here from former colonies to rebuild the country after the Second World War, suddenly being told they didn't have rights. And in some cases, actually being removed from the country and returned to Jamaica and elsewhere. The report's author told me the Windrush generation, invited to live here and help post-war Britain prosper, were caught up in a recent drive to create a hostile environment for illegal immigrants. They were institutionally forgotten by the Home Office. A lot of people were understandably disgusted by the Windrush scandal. And yet earlier you said the only sort of trajectory a Home Office has is to go further rightwards. How do you go further right than that? I mean, um, that was Prissy Patel's big pitch to the public. um, And the Rwanda deportations policy is the result of that. You've now got her successor, Suella Braverman. She's ramped the rhetoric up a notch further. And I would love to be here saying, well, claiming victory. I would love to be having a a front page of the Telegraph with a plane taking off to Rwanda. That's my dream. Daniel, from everything you say, the Home Office does seem to be a department that is in permanent state of chaos and operates under this outsized fear of what the right-wing press will say, which I guess it does suggest that this is a ministry that survives on reputation over results, as though the rhetoric is the point. I think rhetoric and reputation management have been a been a huge part of how the Home Office deals with immigration for, for many years. So it's all about kind of showing your toughness Uh, and I think if I was going to pick one example from the recent history of the Home Office that really showed this it was something that Theresa May did around the same time she launched the hostile environment which was to hire a series of billboard vans um, to drive around very multi-ethnic very diverse areas of London Mm. um, with the words go home written on them. It's been described as gimmicky, divisive, disastrous, cheap and a return to the 70s politics of the National Front. But today the Home Secretary admitted it was not a good idea. Supposedly, you know, as a campaign to encourage illegal immigrants to report themselves to the Home Office and, and ask, ask to leave the country. It still makes me wince. Yeah, obviously not something that was going to achieve what it said its goal was. It was all about how that was then going to be covered in the media and the message that would be sent to voters who might be receptive to that kind of posturing. Daniel, despite those vans and despite the tough talk of hostile environments, we do still have a Home Office that struggles to meet the ridiculous targets it sets itself. For instance, the Rwanda policy, deemed to be an egregious breach of international law by the UN. And we're now talking in the midst of the Manston scandal, where we have seen overcrowding, inhumane conditions, people being dumped in central London with nowhere to go. Now, to paraphrase former Labour MP Tony Benn, the way a government treats refugees shows you how they would treat the rest of us if they thought they could get away with it. Daniel, does any of this come as a surprise to you? Not really. It's a product of things that have been there for a long time, but it's just been given this new, really intense edge by how hard right a government 
uh, we've had for the last few years, and particularly how hard right the Home Secretaries have been. And then when there's a change in the pattern of migration, you know, if there are, there's a, a bit of a rise in the number of people seeking asylum and they all arrive on the coast of Kent rather than arriving in different bits of the country, that overstretched system, a lot of which has been outsourced to profit-making private contractors, um, can't cope. So what would a sensible, achievable migration and asylum policy look like for the Home Office? I think simplifying immigration law, making it far less punitive, would help a huge amount. Uh, Restoring legal aid for most immigration cases and investing considerably more resources in the business of managing immigration, processing visas, uh, dealing with asylum applications, you know, that that's done on a shoestring relative to budgets for other government departments. Yeah, it's a hugely important part of British society. You know, this is something that we should pay for to make it work properly. Daniel, how hopeful are you that we might see a Home Secretary that is able to be honest and realistic about what they want from the Home Office in that, yes, they want to control borders, but actually they don't want to completely close them. It doesn't make economic sense. Um, I think if we look at the current crop of front bench politicians, uh, both among the Conservatives and Labour, it's not that likely that one is just going to emerge spontaneously. But I think the thing to take away from it is that governments respond to pressure. I think one of the things that I have found encouraging in the last few years is that as immigration policy has got much more hard line, you've seen a much broader section of society speaking out against it. And I thought the really widespread opposition to the Rwanda deportation flights, you know, that did throw a spanner in the works. And although I wouldn't expect the current government to suddenly make a U-turn on that, I think the more powerfully people speak out in opposition, the more confidence it will give to politicians who are a bit more liberal minded and a bit more open to reforms to kind of push ahead with that when they do finally get the chance. Diane, from your decades reporting, in your view, What could the government be doing right now to help the people in Manston and put an end to this current crisis? The easiest fix for the Home Office is to get rid of that backlog of 120,000 plus asylum claims. That one act would sort out most of the current problems. The Home Office did issue a statement saying that they've got a new pilot to process asylum claims more quickly because the the system they currently use is quite antiquated. And what tone is Suella Braverman taking in response to all of this? And how is her rhetoric landing with the public and the press? She is certainly speaking to the right wing of her party and her rhetoric is likely to be popular with uh, people on the far right as well. The British people deserve to know which party is serious about stopping the invasion on our southern coast and which party is not. Some 40, but there isn't any evidence that it's overwhelmingly popular with the public. I think the public want to see that the government is 
controlling migration, but also being fair and compassionate. And this sort of extreme language does have an impact, doesn't it? Now, since Suella Bravman has taken charge, one man has firebombed a detention centre in Dover. Diane, how worried are you about the impact on the refugees and migrants that you speak to? I'm deeply concerned that this inflammatory language could make asylum seekers even more of a target than they are already. The term invasion that she's used relating to small boat arrivals has been particularly criticised even by her own colleagues. Certain organisations on the far right, such as Britain First, do target hotels already where asylum seekers are being accommodated. I think this kind of uh, rhetoric can only ramp up that that kind of aggression. And what about any of the people you've spoken to that have passed through Manston and or and now living in hotels? What is it that they they most want or are hopeful for? The the only thing that that matters to asylum seekers is being safe so they can start rebuilding their lives. It's it's not about how much money the Home Office gives them or whether they're in a hotel or not. Diane, thank you so much. Thanks very much. That was Diane Taylor and Daniel Trilling. My thanks to them. Do follow Diane's reporting at theguardian.com where you can also find Daniel's excellent long read, Cruel Paranoid Failing, Inside the Home Office. In a statement to The Guardian following Diane Taylor's reporting, a spokesperson for the Home Office said, The Home Secretary has taken urgent decisions to alleviate issues at Manston and source alternative accommodation. Claims that advice was deliberately ignored are completely baseless. It is right we look at all available options so decisions can be based upon the latest operational and legal advice. On Monday, Robert Jenrick, the immigration minister, told MPs that the number of people in Manston had now returned to below its maximum 1,600 capacity for the first time in weeks. In response to asylum seekers complaining that staff at Manston had tried to sell them drugs, a Home Office statement said, the Home Office expects the highest standards of professionalism from all those contracted to manage the detention estate. The individuals involved in this incident were swiftly removed from the site and we will continue to take robust action against those whose behaviour falls beneath those high standards. With regards to the spread of disease at Manston, the Home Office said, We take the safety and welfare of those in our care extremely seriously. Full medical guidance and protocols have been followed. And with regards to unaccompanied children, they said... We take allegations like this extremely seriously. The safeguarding and welfare of unaccompanied asylum-seeker children is our utmost priority. Children are at risk when asylum-seeking adults claim to be children or children are wrongly treated as adults. All those who claim to be unaccompanied children are age-assessed by officials. And finally, if you want to get a handle on the US midterm elections, do tune in to Politics Weekly America with Jonathan Friedland, which is out today. Find that wherever you get your podcasts. And that's it for today. This episode was produced by Tom Glasser. Sound design is by Axel Cacoutier. The executive producer was Huma Halili. See you tomorrow. This is The Guardian.